5, verse 13, and we're going to go through the end of chapter 5 all the way through chapter 6. Joshua 5, 13 through 6, 27. Let's give our full attention to God's holy word. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was, when Joshua had spoken to the people, that the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, advanced and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So we had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. And they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. 
They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word, to see their Christ, uh, to tremble at him and to trust him. We pray that you would draw us closer to our Savior and make us more like him and to marvel yet more at him by your word this evening. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. It's one of those Old Testament stories that is so well known that always stands out. Uh, any, any children's collection of Bible stories you pick up will have at least a version of this story in it. It's like the flood, like, like Noah's Ark, or, or like the Exodus, or the story of David and Goliath. It's full of miracle, uh, surprise, drama, so it's a favorite. It's a perennial favorite. But that popularity and familiarity can sometimes then get in the way of understanding what's going on and, and appreciating it and seeing how it should impact and influence us. So what is happening in this passage? Well, here, um, here in this text, what we see is the end breaking in. That's the title of the sermon tonight, The End Breaks In. What, what do we mean by that? Well, here, here we see, through the end of Joshua chapter 5 through chapter 6, we see a glorious and at the same time terrible foreshadowing of the day of the Lord. This account here in, 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 of Jericho falling is it's all about God simultaneously bringing salvation and judgment in the same act bringing salvation for his people, judgment for those who are not his people. It's a picture, a foreshadowing, and even an intrusion of the day of the Lord, that day of both salvation and judgment, into the history of Israel. What's this mean for us? Well, God's purpose here, I think, is that that we do two things. That we tremble at the judgment that we see. That we fear the Lord 
by the uh, b- uh, for for his wrath and his power and uh, and his holiness, and also that we that we then turn from sin more and more unto Christ, that we run to Christ, that we trust Christ, trust his saving power, trust his mercy. Uh, trust his salvation. So two things we want this text to do. We want, us to, we want it to make us tremble more at the coming day of God's judgment, but at the same time, trust in the Lord more. Run to him more for refuge, for salvation, looking to him to give us his mercy. So let's walk through the, let's walk through the text here together. Uh, we begin with uh, our first heading, the Lord's Commander. Chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. So verse 13 begins, um, telling us that Joshua is, is, is by Jericho. This is, the, this is the moment we've all been waiting for as we've, been, as we've been reading through the book of Joshua. The book begins with Jericho there in the background. Um, in chapter 2, Jericho is already the target in sight. But then it takes uh, several chapters to, to get warmed up, to actually get there. It's, it's sort of like the spring training. Now it's opening day. Right now, it's the battle of Jericho. Everything that God has been doing up to this point has been preparing the people, training them, reassuring them, getting them ready for this conquest. The war is starting now. And what's so interesting, as we've seen about those first five chapters, this build-up to the actual beginning of the conquest, is that there's almost no mention in those chapters of preparation for war. There's, there's a little bit about um, asking the, the tribes that have some inheritance on the other side of the Jordan to send their fighting men over uh, with the, the rest of Israel on this side of the Jordan. But all the focus really has been on God reassuring his people of his power and his promises and his might and his mercy. It's been reassurance after reassurance so far in these first five chapters. And, and that's important for us to see as we come to chapter 6 here in the Battle of Jericho because, because everyone knows by this point what's going to decide this conflict. Uh, there's, no, uh, there's no doubt in, anyone, in, the, in anyone's mind in Israel that it's up to them to win this conquest. No, the, all eyes are on God. It's, 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 it's all riding on Him. Either he is who he says he is, and victory is sure, or he isn't, and we don't stand a chance. All their confidence is on him. So it's no surprise that before Joshua has made any plan of attack at all, before we read of any military strategy or the troops assembling, when God's people are, are, it seems like they're just waiting, that God then shows up. And that's what we see in verses 13 to 15. Let me read it. Joshua lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So before Joshua has drawn his sword, God has shown up and drawn his sword. Before the armies of Israel have mustered for their assault, God has appeared as a warrior the commander of the Lord's army has appeared. We're not told anything about his appearance here. Um, he's holding a sword, doubtless. He's dressed as a warrior for battle. His appearance is probably imposing and frightening. Joshua doesn't appear to recognize him at first, to know, to know who he is. So he says, are you for us or our adversaries? Who, whose side are you on? The response in verse 14, he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. 
what a response. He says, he says, no, Joshua, it's not the right question. I am not on anyone's side. Uh, the, the question is, who is on my side? The, the Lord is not a mercenary to be bought. He's not a servant of any one nation. He doesn't take orders from any earthly leader. He comes as the commander of the army of the Lord. Well, Joshua hears this, and the commander of the army of the Lord says, Now I've come. The sense that I get as we read this is that Joshua, Joshua has been waiting for this. He's been waiting for the Lord to come and tell him just what he is to do. So as soon as the commander of the army of the Lord here uh, says, uh, jo- uh, 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 tells him that who he is, Joshua falls down on his face and worships him, showing us that, yes, this is the Lord himself in a, in appearing to Joshua in a, in a, in a, in a physical appearance. Um, <clears throat> Joshua's response to fall down on his face before the Lord, the, it's a posture of trust. It's a posture of submission. Now, there's a lesson there for us, isn't there? And Joshua's response to the Lord. What's our posture before the Lord? Are we servants of the Lord? Are we there with Joshua, face on the ground, saying, you're the commander, I'm the servant, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. For myself, I know, so often I try to flip this around. I want, I want God to serve me and my needs and my interests and my wants. I want to have God help me build my little kingdom, serving my little interests. Not to say uh, with Christ, it's my food and drink to do your will. Or to be there with Joshua, face on the ground. What does my Lord say to his servant? So this is a great example for us here, this faith that Joshua demonstrates, submitting himself to the Lord. What's the first thing that this commander of the Lord tells him to do? Verse 15. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Of course, you can probably hear the echo there, right? The Lord has said this before to Moses back in Exodus chapter uh, 3. He called Moses to be the leader, for, uh, to lead the people out of Egypt. He revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, the I Am, And he said to Moses at the burning bush, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And there's reassurance here. The Lord is saying to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. I am who I am. I am with you also. Um, And he calls Joshua to recognize this and to recognize the Lord's holiness. And again, there's a lesson for us here. God's first command to Joshua is, recognize my holiness. Remember who I am. And this also should be a priority for us, right? To, to, before anything else, to recognize who God is, to see His holiness and recognize His holiness, to, to worship the Lord for who He is. This is where we start every time. God is holy. He is the infinite, eternal Creator, and, and we are creatures. So there's, there's good lessons for us to learn here in how Joshua is responding to the Lord, uh, what the Lord's calling Joshua to do. But, but these are really side lessons. They're sidebars. Uh, the main idea is this. The commander of the army of the Lord is the most important character in this story. 
as he shows up here, even before the people have, uh, uh, have, have started to attack Jericho, he shows up, he's saying, uh, this, this is saying to us, this is God's battle. This is God's fight. Joshua is just his servant. The real hero of the story is not Joshua here. It's the Lord himself. I'm sure you know the, uh, maybe you know the children's song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. One of my commentaries um, on this text uh, has as its title for, for the commentary in this section, Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. Because that's the point. The Lord, the, ar- the commander of the army of the Lord, has shown up and he's saying, this is my battle, my fight, and I will get the victory. And brothers and sisters, as true as that was for Joshua and the battle for Jericho, it's true for us. This conflict that we are engaged in. What, what's our conflict? It's, it's not a physical, earthly one. It's the holy war of, of the kingdom of heaven, of putting to death the flesh and, and living more and more in Christ. And the lesson here for us is we are not the main actors and main characters in that fight. Uh, the hero of, of that story is not ourselves and our, and our, and our, and our uh, own efforts to put sin to death and to grow in holiness and to, and to grow more and more in Christ. The, the hero has already shown up before we've done anything. He's already come and he's won the victory. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's come, and, uh, not with sword in hand, but he's come and laid down his life on the cross. And then he's risen from the dead for us and now he's reigning as king for us over all things. So this is where our confidence needs to be. Even as Joshua was being called here, to place his confidence in the Lord and his power to win this victory, so are we being called to put our confidence in him. Don't rely on your strength and your strategy to fight the good fight of the faith. We're tempted to to say, I can do this, I've got this, I just need to work harder, I just need to plan better. Remember who the hero is. Remember who will win this fight. Well, that, once that's established, once God has, has given this uh, lesson to Joshua here, then the people are ready to hear the part that they are going to play. And that's what we see next, the Lord's strategy in our second heading here, verses uh, 1 through 14 of chapter 6, the Lord's strategy. So here in these verses, we get uh, God's battle plan for his people. From a human perspective, it's a very strange battle plan, isn't it? God tells Joshua to have the people march around the city of Jericho for seven days. For the first six days, they'll march around the city uh, just once. Uh, They'll do it without speaking, without shouting. Um, The priests are going to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of them. There's going to be armed men ahead, a rear guard behind of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is there in the center. The priests will be blowing these ram's horns, um, which was a, a, a battle horn. But, but the people aren't to make any attack. They're not to shout yet. And then finally, on the seventh day, after they've done this for a week, they're to march around the city seven times and then shout, and then the walls will collapse, and then they go in. And they will, at that point, slaughter all those within the city. It's a strange, it's a strange strategy. It doesn't make military sense. Why do they need to march around the city for seven days? Why do they need to march around the city at all, for that matter? Can't God just knock the walls down? So what's the significance here of God having them do this? 
I think there's a couple aspects to this. The first is this, the significance of, of, of the seven days of marching around the city. Why seven days? Why six days plus one final day? Of course, in Scripture we see the number seven is the number of wholeness and completeness. Uh, and we see here these seven priests bearing these ram's horns. But, but very specifically here, this is a week. It's six days plus one day. Why a week? Well, think of, think of creation. Six days plus one. Six days of, of work and anticipation. One day of Sabbath rest. The, the seventh day at the end of the creation week isn't just one day. No, it's, it's, it's representing God entering His Sabbath rest. Entering His reward. So what is God doing here? Having these people march around the city six days, and then on the seventh day... The city falls and they enter and they take their inheritance. They enter their Sabbath rest, as it were. Well, he's saying, Here's, I'm, here, I'm establishing a, a type of new creation. It's going to come through judgment, but I'm bringing my people into their Sabbath rest in the promised land here in this pattern of six days plus one. And just like that first creation, the center of the drama is the Lord himself. That's another thing we need to see here. The people aren't doing this for themselves, as we've said. They're out there marching around the city, doing what God has called them to do. They're fulfilling His command, showing that they're faithful, that they're trusting Him. But, but the focus is on the Lord. Center stage here is the Ark of the Covenant, representing the Lord's presence with His people, His promises to them. Again, telling them that the Lord is the one who is fighting this war. This is always how God's salvation comes, isn't it? It comes in apparent foolishness to man, an apparent weakness, and it puts to shame the proud and the strong. So I think the point here is, is to get all attention, all eyes fixed on the Lord and what He is going to do. You can imagine, I'm sure, the anticipation of the people of Israel day after day for a whole week marching around this city. The seventh day is getting closer waiting to see what God is going to do. Also think about the anticipation of the people of Jericho as the week unfolded. Sometimes in depictions, they're, uh, they're depicted as uh, confident and mocking the Israelites, but there's not a hint of that in the biblical narrative here. We've already seen, actually, in, in the first five chapters of Joshua, that every time they're mentioned, they are scared stiff of the Lord and His people. They are terrified. I don't think they were mocking here. Uh, uh, the sense to me is that the city's in suspense, that, that they're waiting, they're watching, dreading what is about to happen as the army of the Lord is circling their city. And in their minds, they're thinking of, of the God who, who defeated the Egyptians, part of the Red Sea, brought this people in through the parting of the Jordan River, dreading the Lord of hosts. And so all the, you know, these days add up. The anticipation builds. All eyes are on the Lord. And that's where we pick up in our third point, the Lord's judgment. Verses 15 through 21, then again, verse 26. So finally, the seventh day comes. The people have perfectly obeyed God and His command. The people of Jericho must have noticed the seventh day, something's different. They're marching around the city seven times. I'm sure their apprehension is building to an almost unbearable point and of course it should have been, because what was about to happen would, would, was worse than anything that they could have imagined. 
Now Joshua gave careful instructions to the people. He said, after the trumpets are blown, the final time around the city, then the people are to shout, all together with one great shout. At that point, the walls are going to collapse, and, and the people are to rush in, and they are to destroy the entire city. They are to slaughter everyone and everything in the city, with the one exception of Rahab and those in her house. The text says they are to utterly destroy it or devote it to destruction, the whole city. That's the language of sacrifice, of, of offering something up as a sacrifice to the Lord. It's, it's to devote it to God. That's what they're to do. They're supposed to turn this city, as it were, into a sacrifice. Everything except for the precious metals, um, which they are to use to furnish the Lord's treasury. So they finish the seventh march. The priests do blow the ram's horns. The people all shout together. And at that very moment, the walls collapse. They fall down flat. The commander of the army of the Lord has wielded his sword at that moment. It's like, it's like toppling a, a, a children's toy block castle. The mighty walls of Jericho fall and crumble. And the people of Jericho, I'm sure, are in total shock and terror as this is happening. And, and verse 21 tells us that they are uh, the people of Israel rush in and they show no mercy. It says this, They utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. The text spells it out for us. It doesn't hold back. It's unrelenting. Here is God's wrath in judgment. It's really too horrible for us to grasp. Verse 24 tells us they then burn the, the city, whatever's left, they burn to the ground. Verse 26 then tells us Joshua lays a curse on the site where the city stood. If anyone ever tries to rebuild it again, it's going to be at the cost of their firstborn son. And, and so Jericho has been obliterated by the wrath of God. It's been made a curse, devoted to destruction, offered up as a sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, what are we to make of this? This graphic and difficult display of God's judgment. Some read this account and they say, well, that, that's, that's genocide. That's that's." Oh, that's uh, uh, Terrible human rights violations. Is this the God of love and grace? How can you love a God who would do this to a city? How can he command the Israelites to go in and slaughter the entire city like so much cattle for sacrifice? Well, this is the God of love and grace. We see this throughout Scripture. But we also need to remember that this is also the God. The God of love and grace is always, at the same time, the God of holiness and the God of justice. And as we read texts like this, we're reminded we have very little idea of just how holy He is. How utterly, purely holy He is. And, by contrast, how deeply sinful we are. How deeply sinful we all are. This is what our sin deserves. This unmitigated wrath. And God is, uh, the people of Jericho here, God's pouring out His wrath on, they're no exception. But God has been patient with them. He has endured long. He's, he's held back the conquest. Part of the reason He waited so long to allow the people of Israel to go into the Promised Land was because He was showing restraint and patience with the sins of the people in the land. 
Back in Genesis 15, 16, he tells Abraham, this is the very reason he's waiting over 400 years to bring the people into the land because the iniquity of the inhabitants of the land was not yet complete. God was waiting, being patient. Nonetheless, even though all this is true, it would be awful, unjust, and wicked, of course, for any nation today to do something like this. But Israel isn't acting like, uh, like any other nation here. Something unique, something, something unique is happening here. And what is it? Well, we said earlier, the end is breaking in. We're getting a taste here of the judgment of the last day. When, when a man stands before God and uh, faces his wrath for their sin. And we're all guilty before the Lord of rebellion against Him, of, of, uh, of hatred towards Him, of refusing to live the way He made us to live and has commanded us to live. So as God is, as God is bringing His people into this typological promised land, this promised land pointing forward to the heavenly one, He is doing this at the same time with a typological judgment, a judgment pointing forward to the judgment on the last day. Theologian Meredith Klein calls this an intrusion of the end times into history. It's like Noah's flood, right? It's another example of this sort of thing. A moment when the final judgment sort of burst into history and fell upon a sinful man. Israel was, was in this moment made, for, for the time being, an instrument of God's wrath carrying out this kind of end time judgment on God's enemies. So yes, it is uh, hard to bear, it's hard to hear, it's, it's a terrible judgment to see, but it is just. This is the, the just wrath of God for our sins. This is nothing more than what our sin deserves. How should we respond? Well, we should tremble at the wrath of God, at, at, his, at His judgment for sin, at His holiness. This is what you and I deserve too. We should tremble thinking that if, if this is what a foreshadowing of the end times looks like, what will that day be like? But we shouldn't just tremble. Surely the inhabitants of Jericho trembled as they felt the walls shake. But, but, as they, uh, but, but, but trembling needs then to move to trusting and, and running to God, not just, not just seeing and, and being in awe of His judgment, but then running to Him for refuge, trusting in His mercy. And that's what we see here as the text goes on. It doesn't, it doesn't stay here with, with this account of God's wrath and His judgment. It moves to an account of His mercy. Juxtaposed together, we have these two things, the God of, of uh, holiness and justice and the God who saves and the God who is merciful. That's our final point this evening. The Lord's salvation, verses 22 through 27. After we've read this account of judgment, we then turn our attention to Rahab. Joshua sends this two spies who originally uh, went into the city and, and were hid by Rahab. He sends them to go get her, bring her and those with her out of the city. And, and when we see this, we see here the depth and the breadth of God's grace. We see the depth of it. God, in the text here, makes a point of calling Rahab the harlot or the prostitute. It happened, she's called this twice, both in verse 22, then 25. The text isn't glossing over this. It's, it's actually, it seems like it's highlighting it, saying, now remember, just, just remember who Rahab is that God's saving here. She was, a, she was an idol-worshiping prostitute, an enemy of God, 
But God has taken her and made her a part of His covenant people. I'm saving her. I'm giving her a place in the promised land. Listen to what verse 25 says. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Rahab goes from being a a child of destruction. She's brought into the promised land and given an inheritance for the children of Israel. This woman had lived in every possible way, out of accord with God's law, broken all his commandments, sinned against him in every possible way, and now she's saved by his grace and given this new inheritance. You see the depth of God's grace there. But not only do we see the depths of his grace, we also see here the breadth of his grace. Because this isn't just for Rahab. You can say, well, okay, so Rahab gets in because she helped the spies. But we see this grace extends to uh, Rahab's whole family. Verse 23, And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives. So Rahab's been busy since the spies came. She's, been, she, she's taken their promise to heart that she would be saved and anyone with her. And she's gone to her family and she said, Come, come into my house when the Israelites come so that you will be saved. These, didn't, these, uh, these people who come with her into her house, whoever comes into her house is saved. They didn't do anything to earn this. All they did was see the God of mercy and run to him. And God saved them. He showed them mercy. He gave them all a place in his covenant. So we see the breadth of God's grace. Now, by highlighting his grace here, the depth of it, the breadth of it to Rahab and to her family, I think God is also reminding Israel of his grace to them. Israel, too, was lost in idol worship. Nothing good in themselves. And and how often has this people, the people of Israel, wandered away from the Lord, broken his covenant? How often do we see in the prophets that that Israel is compared to a, a prostitute, an adulteress, committing spiritual adultery, running after other gods? So God is reminding them here of His mercy which saves someone like Rahab. And they should see this and say, the only reason we are not being destroyed like Jericho is because God has chosen us out of His love and mercy. So God shows His grace here. But the question, one more question to think about is, is this. Is, is it just for God to do this? If, if Israel is just as sinful in many ways as Jericho, is God just being arbitrary, showing mercy to one group and showing justice to another when both are equally guilty? How can this be just? If they all deserve God's wrath, shouldn't they all get it? Well, Israel does deserve to be devoted to destruction, just like Jericho. You and I deserve to be devoted to destruction in that same way. What's the difference? How can God show mercy? Well, Israel has a substitute. They have a sacrifice so that they aren't sacrificed. And it's Christ. Right? Israel had these types, these pictures foreshadowing Christ. The lambs, goats, bulls that they were sacrificing. With all these were pointing to the Lord Jesus. The one who is devoted to destruction. Offered up as a sacrifice for our sakes. Christ on the cross. There we see God's judgment breaking in, His end-time judgment breaking in and falling on His Son for our sins and our place so that we can have a glorious inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. So what are we to do? How do we respond? 
Well, tremble at the coming judgment. Look at the foreshadowing of it here. You know, in, in, a, in a sense, our world is like the city of Jericho. Judgment is coming. The army of the Lord of hosts is encircling, and judgment is going to fall. Tremble, but then run. Run to the Lord who promises mercy. Trust in His might. Trust in His mercy. Trust that He will give all those who run to Him a place in His heavenly inheritance. Trust in His grace to Rahab's and Israelites like you and I are. And that Christ is our refuge, the one that uh, that was offered up as a sacrifice in our place, that God might indeed be just to show us His boundless mercy. Let's pray together.